e-commerce landscape has transformed into a versatile and unique space, offering today's companies, large and small, an opportunity to increase sales and grow their business. This podcast offers an exciting opportunity for PriceFinder to unite and empower the e-commerce community at large by providing insights in a thoughtful and accessible way, all with the aim of providing immense value to brand manufacturers and retailers alike. I'm Anthony Cavazzoli, the host of the PriceFinder e-commerce connected podcast. Today is part one of our three-part series on pricing policy. Our guest is Mr. Eugene Zellick, a partner at Taft Law in Chicago. Here's a little quote about Gene. Superb at thoroughly educating you on complex, important issues and explaining options. He is service-oriented and delivers great results and value. Specifically, if you're trying to combat internet price and program violations, he is your guy. I've worked with Gene for a very long time, and I can say firsthand that he is absolutely the best at what he does and all things pricing policy. In our second segment around pricing policies, the intermediate segment, we'll be listening to and enjoying the words of our wonderful guest, Mr. Eugene Zellick. We'll be talking specifically about the moving parts around the pricing policy, things like EMRP, what good compliance looks like how to start small and grow into a successful policy, understand the details about limiting your scope, and then growing into a successful expansion, uh, and then centralizing policy management. So lots of things to cover with our great guest, Mr. Eugene Zellick. Now, on with the show. One of the things I try to coach people on, too, is start small, not just the number of SKUs, but where you're looking. And the reason for that is... A lot of people don't have floors and floors and floors of staff that can stop their, you know, quit their day job, so to speak, and focus all of their efforts on uh, the pricing policy. So they have, they have their other day jobs they have to work on. So by limiting the where you're looking at first, not out of the gates, but rather out of the gates, that's where you, you, know, you start to look. I, I often coach on like Amazon or Walmart, Target. Uh, and I'm just making those up. Now yeah, the stuff that's really visible. That's what really you're visible. saying. Google yeah. Shopping. Focus on those problems because they're really telling. And then you start to expand the scope outward from there. Now, that's not true for every single brand. And please take that into consideration when you're making that decision. But it helps you when you limit the, the scope at first. Uh, it helps you win. It helps you feel good every day that you're making improvements. And then you slowly expand out. This way, the executives that are asking the questions, how's it going? You could say, we're getting, we, last week you were at 87%. Now we're at 95% compliance right, or right. whatever. Well, I think you have to be careful, too. Uh, you, you don't want to extend that for too long because if your uh, monitoring takes a long time to really come up to speed, uh, credibility issues will come up because you'll be missing a bunch of stuff. So I'm mean, no problem like phasing it in. Sure. And, and you're right. I mean, every company I've ever worked with has uh, resource constraints. And we, we like to centralize policy management in the form of somebody we typically call a policy uh, administrator. Mm-hmm. And we don't want the salespeople talking about our policies right? because they're uh, very good at sales and that's what they're supposed to do. Not very good at being police officers and it puts them in a bad situation. So it's, it's good if they can just direct questions, comments, complaints to somebody at headquarters as a policy administrator. But then the question becomes, well, who should that be and is that a full-time job or not? And mm-hmm. in a, a bunch of organizations we work with, that person's really busy at the outset and hopefully over a period of time it can become a part-time job but in others it's more than a full-time job uh, and and it really depends on the degree of, of violations the other thing we're seeing is that there's a tendency particularly among smaller companies but not necessarily smaller companies 
to outsource the enforcement process, some of the web price monitors who send the letters and, and things like that. And we think that's, that's maybe a good way to go with one big caveat, and that is the manufacturer has to maintain control of the process. Mm -hmm. It has to be making the decisions, not the web price monitor. Uh, you know, particularly in some of the policies we write, there are alternative penalties. Either we're going to take money away or we're going to deny product access or both. Well, who makes that decision? And that definitely should be the manufacturer. That shouldn't be the uh, the monitor. Or maybe the ultimate decision to cut somebody off altogether. Uh, again, the manufacturer needs to control that. It's it's business. But, but using third parties can be very valuable in that regard. It can offload some of that burden. For sure. Uh, so it's been a really solid, I think, introductory discussion around pricing policies. I think uh, people have a good understanding of you know, how to get started, what they should include or what they shouldn't include, ways to kind of prevent over-scoping, but at the same time, uh, go again, you know, under, avoid under-scoping it as well. So uh, it's, it's a really good basis. And now, now that let's just assume that we're doing well, we're live, uh, retailers are compliant. What are some of the next level challenges that people might face as a brand uh, with a pricing policy? Um, it, 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 there's a whole variety of them, some of which come up sooner rather than later. And uh, the, uh, uh, one of the big ones is understanding what a policy is. And uh, that has a couple of different components. Uh, a policy by definition is not negotiated. It's an announcement. And one of the reasons to centralize discussion in a policy administrator and so on is you don't want negotiations. There's a lawsuit going on right now involving the contact lens manufacturers, which alleged that their MRP, minimum resale price policies, are effectively agreements because they negotiated changes into them uh, based on uh, various retailers. So you, you don't want negotiation. And uh, again, they're just announcements. This is because, and I just want to digress here for a second, we should touch on the law. In the United States, minimum uh, advertised price agreements are judged under a very friendly and low-risk standard called the rule of reason. Uh, on the MRP side, minimum resale price agreements uh, are illegal in five states. Uh, at least that's been the enforcement posture, and that's uh, New York, California, Illinois, Michigan, and Maryland. So you can only do these by unilateral policy. You can't have any agreements uh, on the MRP side. But standing back, uh, there is a real advantage from a business point of view in having a policy rather than an agreement. Why? Because if I have an agreement, first I've got to get everybody to agree. Right. And that gives any one retailer veto power, effectively. And then unless my agreement allows for it, every time I want to make a change, I've got to get everybody to agree. Where with a policy, it's just an announcement. I announce it, and I think you alluded to this uh, uh, earlier, uh, the, uh, if I want to make a change, I just make a change. It's my policy. I don't change it every week or every day or whatever, but I can adjust it as I go. I, the goal is right out of the box to get it more or less right or pretty much right. Sure. But I'm not stuck with it forever. I can, I, I can adjust. The, the other thing, though, is um, in terms of a uh, uh, kind of out-of-the-box challenge is you really have to understand that this is a long-term play. The reason people do policies to protect against price erosion is usually for two reasons. One is to uh, uh, level the playing field and to give the higher margin retailers the opportunity to stay in the game. Now, why do I want some of the higher margin people? I, I, maybe because I just simply want my product in a lot of places. But it may be that I need some of the higher margin people because they actually sell my product. Um, you know, the web is great for uh, 
fulfillment. If I know exactly what I want, I can find it, I can get it fairly quickly and usually at a decent price. But for products that require selling, there's no selling that's done on the web. Right. None. And I may need a brick-and-mortar person to make comparisons, to show me various products, to find out how I'm going to use it and make recommendations and whatever. So I may want those people to survive. So one of the goals is that I want a diversity of channel members. And among other things, I don't want to be dependent at the end of the day on two customers, you know, Amazon and Walmart. Um <laughs> So I, I, I want uh, that to uh, occur. A very important thing to conserve my brand equity is the other thing. I simply don't want my product to be commoditized. And both of these are long-term plays, and these clash head-on with the short-term stuff. What's the short-term stuff? Making volume. Yeah. And there's a reluctance on the part of some manufacturers when they realize what's happening. Well, well wait a minute, I can't cut people off because where's, how am I going to make up the volume? And it seems anomalous, but the way you save your brand, which is a long-term play, is by cutting off some people who shouldn't be selling your product. Uh, but th th that's a bitter pill. Another one is unrealistic expectations. I think uh, people feel, sort of the second challenge, that, gee, I put this policy in a place and the world will be rosy. And what they ignore is that at the end of the day, I may not have a pricing problem. I may have a distribution problem. I'm just simply over-distributed or I'm selling to too many people where I shouldn't. Uh, we have some apparel manufacturers who uh, one of them will go as low as Macy's. So, you know, no Walmart, no uh, uh, no Kohl's, but they'll go as low as Macy's. The others won't even go that low. It's all Nordstrom, uh, Saks Fifth Avenue, uh, and uh, Neiman Marcus and specialty stores. And that's just what they want to do for their brand. Uh, but uh, in any event, they have, their expectations are unrealistic because they understand what they need to do in order to maintain that. But people who think this is just like a magic pill and they can do it yeah. or they can put it in place and not have to enforce it, it's just ridiculous. I like uh, to, I'm sorry, to, I like to kind of like go ahead. to keeping your foot on the gas and the brake. Yeah. Uh, because it does require, it, it, it's not a magic pill, as you say. It's not a magic wand, it doesn't solve all your problems. It takes work and effort and dedicated focus and, and the ability to kind of take ego aside and say, I'm going to take a little bit of a hidden volume. I'm going to make it up in brand integrity and pricing integrity and brand value long term, not just for the brand, but for the retailers and the consumers. But it also forces you to take a hard, hard look at your channel, not just the online channel, but the extended right, channel. Right. And like you said, it could be a distribution problem. It comes up a lot where people say, well, I have two-step distribution. I didn't even know where to begin to ch uh, deal with that challenge. Uh, so I don't want to interrupt, or maybe we could talk about that too. No, we should uh, talk about that. We're just getting a handle on the indirect buyers. Uh, and many manufacturers have no idea who's really buying their products. And so one uh, thing that can be very useful is to have an authorization program. Uh, you know, in the ideal world, you would get all of your direct and indirect uh, resellers, that is, those who serve the, the end users, uh, they would sign your agreement uh, or be subject to certain policies. Uh, you, you can make, certainly make them subject to your pricing policy, but other kinds of policies in terms of use of trademarks and all kinds of other things. Some companies do that with great effect. Other companies, there's just simply too many uh, people to deal with. So we take the point of view, okay, fine, the fallback is everybody's authorized till we say they aren't. Right. And uh, then that way, when people are falling out of line or not doing certain kinds of things, you uh, stop selling them. And if they're buying indirectly through distributors or wholesalers, uh, you put them on a do not sell list that is uh, circulated to the distributors and wholesalers and they're obligated to follow. 
which actually is a pretty good segue to another point, and, and, and I, I don't want to uh, leave this one behind, but uh, another challenge is uh, uh, stupid behavior towards wholesalers and distributors. We've seen manufacturers that uh, tell their wholesalers, well, we want you to enforce our policy, or we want you to put a policy in place that mirrors ours and do the work. And that's just dead wrong. That's not the job of the, the distributors. Moreover, you have some legal issues, particularly in the MRP area, if you do that. Uh, it's your policy. You have to enforce it. But it is reasonable to res uh, expect out of wholesalers or distributors that, one, they'll pass on communications from you. This is a way to reach the indirect people. The, the reality is you can ask them to do it or require them to do it. But they're usually not very good at it because they've got other things to spend time on. But still, you can require them to do it. Uh, the, the, the second thing is they will honor your do not sell list and they won't sell to anybody on it. And somebody could go on the do not sell list because they're a chronic uh, pricing violator or you just simply don't want your product sold there. Uh, you know, for whatever reason, they, like the apparel company I mentioned before, uh, Walmart's a terrific company, but for uh, this particular client, they do not want to sell uh, their products at Walmart. That's fine. Uh, that's their prerogative. So you can put Walmart in the do not sell list, uh, not because it did anything wrong, but we don't want our products sold there. Um, and we don't want we don't want Walmart buying from distributors to get to get our products. We won't sell them directly. Oh, so that so that that's a really interesting point. So it takes away. If I can spitball here, forgive me, Gene. Um, no, go ahead. It, it's interesting because it takes the pressure off of the brand to figure out who all these people are. They could just say, we'll sell everybody until we say we can't, like you said. Right. And then they can add a select number, however that number, whatever that don't to the don't sell list. This way, it's manageable. It takes the workload off, and it's it's easier to be successful long term. So that I, that's a really interesting way to go about it, I think. Yeah, we've got a, a hybrid situation right now for a client, uh, and um, it's it's having difficulty with a particular reseller. And I hate to say this, but it's come to litigation, and so far we're winning. Um, and one of the reasons we're winning is they took the point of view we did an MRP policy for it, and we did distributor agreements. Uh, and as far as dealers were concerned, or retailers. They decided that, no, they weren't going to have everybody sign agreements, only those that wanted to sell online. So if you want to sell online, you got to sign our agreement. So we, we did, and by agreement, uh, I, I think our uh, agreement for this client is two pages long. Sure. But it's got all the goodies in it. And the big thing was uh, that once we part company, once we terminate our relationship, they were required to stop selling our product, stop using our intellectual property, and return to us or allow us to buy back all the product that we deemed acceptable. And this particular company uh, wound up uh, ignoring our pricing policy, so we cut them off. Then we terminated their authorized online dealer status, and uh, they kept selling. And they're probably sourcing product from other places that they shouldn't have been, uh, violating other contracts. Uh, and we'll find out where they're getting the product from. But uh, uh, in any event, they were, they were still selling. So after a couple of demand letters, we filed a lawsuit in Los Angeles, and we just got a preliminary injunction against them. The court ordered them, stop selling our product, stop using our IP, hmm. return the product to us. And um, the reason we were able to get that 
was uh, well, first of course, we're incredibly good lawyers. But 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 apart from <laughs> of that, of course, that's it for sure. Saying, yeah, yeah. But 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 uh, the big thing was because this company had been in trouble with other manufacturers, uh, and the other manufacturers had not hit Pater like we did. And we think the reason for it is the agreement. The agreement was the magic. Yes, we went after them for intellectual property grounds, which is usually what you you do in these cases. But the contract specifically said they couldn't do this after termination, sure. and that really is the magic. Now the case is not over yet, and in fact, the bad guys are in contempt even as we speak, and we're. Not a contempt motion, uh, and uh, but uh, it really gave us a leg up. So right. they didn't get agreements with everybody; just the authorized online uh, people. Uh, mm-hmm. They they, they want to focus on that because it goes back to something that was that we we touched on before, which is controlling distribution. We wanted to be able to control who sells where. So both as part of the policy, and we do this for all the policies we write, as well as the authorized online dealer agreement. Uh, each retailer or dealer is banned from selling online, period, except from those websites that we approve in advance uh, and subject to our continuing approval and using business names that we approve in advance and subject to our continuing approval. So all these people had to apply to us and say, well, you know, I want to sell on eBay or I want to sell here or I want to sell there. Yeah. And then we selectively approved them, among other things, to control how many people were selling on eBay or in the Amazon marketplace, yeah. as well as other websites. And uh, as, as one of our clients in the pet industry said, you know, I realized we don't need 200 online sellers. 50 no. is plenty. And uh, in addition, this, this client also said, we don't need 12 distributors. Four are plenty. Yeah. And by reducing that population, it's just easier to manage, uh, uh, quite frankly. That's great. Uh, Gene, as always, it has been uh, my pleasure. Uh, it's always wonderful spending time with you in this great view in your office. Uh, so if you can give away some particulars on how people might be able to reach you, if they want to uh, talk to you with, about your services, that would be a great way to end. Yeah, sure. I, I'm, I'm always willing to talk to people. I mean, even without the meter ticking. I know that's terrible, and I could get drummed out of the lawyer's union for that, but <laughs> please don't tell anybody about it. But I'm certainly glad to answer questions. I mean, I'm a, I'm a real proponent that everybody's better off with knowledge in this area because there's so many misperceptions. Uh, and in that regard, my uh, name again is Gene Zellick, Z's and Zebra, E-L-E-K. And I can be reached at E, and the E, by the way, stands for Eugene. I'll only admit that to certain people. But uh, uh, E-Z-E-L-E-K, one word, at Taft, T-A-F-T, law, L-A-W, one word, dot com. So ezelic at taftlaw.com. And uh, my office phone is uh, 312-836-4010. Thank you, Gene. It's always a pleasure, buddy. And we're looking forward to having you as a guest on many other segments. Well, thank you. Thank you. Always always great to talk about stuff that I really care about. Thank you for listening to the Price Spider E-Commerce Connected Podcast. And joining us with our guest, Mr. Eugene Zellick of Taft Law. You can learn more about Price Spider by visiting PriceSpider.com and clicking on the Expertise tab at the top. And one last thing about Price Spider, we are the world's leading conversion platform with real-time data connecting the dots between brands, retailers, and shoppers to provide the exact information you need to take action. Thanks for listening.